0: Uh, I've been thinking a little bit about, uh, I was thinking this past week a little bit about the title of the series that we're in, the gospel, and the last place that you would expect to find it. And I was just thinking about what people who are brand new to our church uh, might think this series is about when they they hear that title. Like some people might think, well, you know, the last place that I would expect to see the gospel or to find the gospel would be uh, like in a strip club or something. Or maybe some people would say, well, the last place that I would expect to find it is on a college campus. Or maybe the last place I would expect to find the gospel would be in the Middle East. Or some people might say, well, the last, the last place I would ever expect to find the gospel is in a Southern Baptist church. Just kidding. Just kidding. Of course you can find the gospel in the Middle East. It is absolutely uh, there in the Middle East. Just, I, I really am just kidding. I, I just like to pick on Baptists. Um, actually, what we're discovering in this series is that the gospel is in a place in the Bible, that most people would never think to look. When most people with any familiarity with the scriptures think about the gospel, they generally think uh, New Testament. But what we're discovering in this series is that the gospel is in the Old Testament too. It's even in a book uh, of the Old Testament that is most known for the giving of the law, the book of Exodus. And so I'd like for you, if you have a Bible with you, to turn with me in it to Exodus chapter 5. Exodus chapter 5, and I'm going to ask you to keep your fingers very nimble because we're going to move through a bunch of passages of Scripture uh, this morning. Exodus chapter 5, and just remember that what I want you to see in this series that we're in are three things. First, I want you to see and understand the consistency of the message of the Bible. The second thing that I want you to see in this series is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And then the third thing that I want you to see is the beauty of the gospel over every other religion, and over every other philosophy in the world. Now, by chapter 5, we've been in this series three weeks, but we're in chapter 5. By, by chapter 5, God has appointed Moses as the leader of the nation of Israel, and he has told him to go to Pharaoh, and he is to say to Pharaoh, what is he to say to Pharaoh? You guys know, come on, what is he to say to Pharaoh? No, that is not what he says to Pharaoh. It is not let my people go. We covered this in the first week. Come on. It is let my people go so that they may worship me. That's... He did not say, let my people go. I'm going to ask you this throughout this series. It's going to be like a quiz. I'm going to ask all the way through this. He did not say, let my people go. He said, let my people go so that they may worship me. Let's do that again. Let my people go so that they may worship me. That's what he said. Because freedom is not freedom to just do anything. Real freedom is the freedom to worship God. Okay, now... Just so that you understand, the section that we're going to cover in Scripture this morning is is like six chapters long, so it's way too long for me to read every verse. So I'm going to take you to a few different spots uh, in this section of Scripture. So I want you to keep your fingers nimble. And we're going to start at chapter 5, and I want you to start reading at uh, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. Okay, afterward, let me get to it here. Chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Another, form of, another part of their worship. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and I will not let, I will not let Israel go. It's not too hard to see, I don't think, that Pharaoh is singularly unimpressed with the Lord's command. His question is, who is the Lord? Who's the Lord that I should obey him? And let Israel go. Now, this question that he asks is important for two reasons. One is that if you have any familiarity with the Bible, you may know that what is going to follow now are 11 plagues that God is going to bring on Pharaoh and all of Egypt. And what I want you to see, what I want you to understand, is that these plagues are God's answer to this question from Pharaoh. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? The plagues are God's answer to that question. But now, this, this, this question is important, I think, for a second reason. And the second reason is that it's such a relevant question for our culture today. Because you see, Pharaoh is not asking this question as a religious atheist. I mean, there weren't many religious atheists in that day and age. He's asking this question as a religious uh, pluralist. So when he asks this question, when he says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? He's not saying like an atheist would be saying. He's not saying, I don't believe that your God exists. That's not it. What he's saying is what a religious pluralist would say. And see if this doesn't sound familiar to you. He's saying, look, you Hebrews have your God. I have my God. It is very intolerant for you to insist that I should obey or listen to your God. That's wrong. You can't talk about the God because there are many views of God. They're all right. There are many ways to God. They're all equal. Now, does that sound familiar to any of you? Because I hear this all the time sometimes in uh, things that are directed to me personally, sometimes when I'm reading or, or even watching TV or movies, you, you get this question. It's often asked rhetorically, who are you to insist that I should worship your God? I have my God. Pharaoh would be right at home in, in postmodern America. Look, he, he would say, it's, it's fine for you to worship the Hebrew God, but we're Egyptians and we worship our own gods. Don't put your God on me. So I want you to understand that these plagues answer Pharaoh's question, but they also ask, answer the question of anyone here today, or anyone who is listening to our app, or anybody who would be listening to our podcast, who is wrestling with this idea that there is one singular God. Okay, that's what these plagues are intended to answer. So now with that understanding, what I want to do is I want to take a 30,000-foot look at these plagues. Again, we're not going to look at them all in detail. There's just too much. What I want you to see is God's answer in these plagues. What is God saying through these plagues? What's his answer to this very important question that Pharaoh asks and that many people in our culture today are asking? And many, maybe perhaps there are some of you that are asking that question today. So do this. Turn to chapter 7, if you would. Uh, Chapter 7, and I want you to look at verse 14. Chapter 7, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, He said, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, and as he goes out to the river, confront him on the bank of the Nile, and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go so that they worship, may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. Verse 17 This is what the Lord says By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink, and the Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. Now again, this plague and just I, I, forgive me for being overly repetitive here, but I want, I want you to get this, that this plague and all the plagues that are follow to follow are God's answer to the question, "Who is the Lord uh, that I should obey Him?" And what I want you to see is that God's first answer to that question is, "I am the singular God. John, I can't get this thing to work. So can you do that for me? Thank you. very much. Who is the Lord that I should obey him?" That's Pharaoh's question. And God says, "I am the singular God. Look at verse 17. It says, by this you will know that I am the Lord. He's not saying a Lord. He's saying the Lord. In other words, all of the plagues that follow are a direct assault on the idea that there are many gods, all of them, all of whom are equally worthy. God has the audacity in this passage's passage of scripture to proclaim his superiority over all other forms of worship and over all other religions and all over all other forms of spirituality he says there are no others and every plague that follows attacks one of the egyptian gods the first plague is an attack here on the nile river just so happens that the Nile River was one of the gods in the Egyptian pantheon of gods. The sun and the moon were also gods of the Egyptians. And you will see in a little bit that the next to last plague that God brings on Egypt is an attack on the sun and the moon. The bottom line, what God is saying in all of these plagues is I am bigger and I am better than your gods. I am superior. Your gods don't exist. They are a figment of your imagination. And yet you are still, even though they don't exist, even though they're a figment of, of your imagination, you are still enslaved uh, to these gods. And he's saying, I am the singular God. That's what he wants us to understand. Okay, that's the first answer to the question. Who is? is the Lord, and why should I obey him? God is saying to Pharaoh, because there's no other God. I'm the singular God. Okay, now, here's the second, quest, second answer to that question of Pharaoh's. It is this. I am the creator God. I am the creator God. John, you can go ahead and put that up. There you go, you got it, okay. Now, here's the question. Where is that, where's that stated in the text. Well, it's not directly stated in the text. You have to look at the plagues uh, to see this. And one of the things that you would notice, if you were to read through all of the plagues, one of the things you would notice is that, frankly, none of the plagues that come on Israel feel, um, I guess the best way I could say it would be, they don't feel super miraculous. They are miraculous. They just don't feel super miraculous. So, for instance, let me, let, me, let me explain what I mean here. Uh, the first plague is a plague on the Nile River, and the water becomes undrinkable. You read that, and all the fish rot and die. Well, if you were to read through uh, all of the plagues, you would notice that all of the plagues that immediately follow are consequences of that last plague. So, because the ecosystem of the Nile River is destroyed, like millions of frogs come out of it, and they are just all over Egypt. That's the second plague. And then all of those frogs die. As a result of that, you've got all of these rotting frog carcasses all over Egypt, and you get a plague of gnats. That's the third plague. And then you get, after a plague of gnats, you get a plague of flies. That's the fourth plague. And then as a result of that, you get this epidemic that comes on and kills all the livestock. That's the fifth plague. And then you get this epidemic that comes along that infects people. That's the sixth plague. And so on and so on. Now, the question that I find myself asking when I read through all of these plagues is is why? Why does God do it this way? Like, couldn't he have thought of a more startling an obviously super miraculous way to get Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. Like, like, look, if he would have turned Pharaoh into a frog, that would have done it like that, right? I mean, just boom. And Pharaoh's like, you know, I'll let him go. If you just turn me back into a person, I'll, I'll let him. Why didn't he do that? That would have been super miraculous. And it could have shortened this whole deal. You wouldn't have had to bring all of these plagues on one big miracle and it would have been over. But God doesn't do it that way. In fact, these plagues that he brings on are so like, seemingly unsuper miraculous that Pharaoh has these guys in his court. They're like uh, magicians and they think that they can even duplicate some of these plagues, these guys do. And it's not until like the very end that Pharaoh begins to realize that these aren't just natural plagues, they're supernatural. So why does God do this so, so slowly and so subtly? Okay. And the answer to that is that there's a message in these plagues. Commentators and scholars have uh, noted for many years now that the plagues here in Exodus chapters 5 through 11... Now, get this, because this is fascinating. These, these plagues are an undoing of the story of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. So, like, these plagues are an undoing of that. In Genesis 1 and 2, you've got God taking all of creation, you know, man and woman and and, and animals and plants and land and water and weather, and he's turning them into this Beautiful, completely perfect, interdependent, peaceful, whole. Where everything, everyone and everything is working together and they coexist. And they they work together perfectly. And as a result of that, all of creation flourishes and grows. And there's wholeness and order in the whole universe as a result of that. In the plagues, though, we see completely the opposite. They're not just supernatural, though they are, don't misunderstand me, they are supernatural. What they are, though, is that they are a nature out of control. Nature going crazy, nature breaking down, and nature destroying itself, and nature reverting back to pre-creation chaos. Every day of creation, from Genesis 1 and 2, is being completely undone. And so you've got the weather destroying animals and you've got insects destroying plants and, you've, and, and so on and, and so forth until you get all the way back to Genesis chapter one, to 1, verse 2 where the text says that the earth was without form and void and there was chaos and there was darkness over the face of the deep. Now skip ahead just a moment to the next to last plague. Look at chapter 10, verse 21. Remember, darkness was over... Uh, over all of the earth, at Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now look at chapter 10, verses 21 to 23. Here we go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, so that darkness spreads over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. So, here's here's the thing. Not only is God demonstrating his power over all of creation in these plagues, but he's also saying in these plagues that his authority over all creation is not arbitrary. It's not like these plagues are not just an exercise of his naked power. What he's he's saying is that everything that he commands humanity to do, what he's commanding Pharaoh to do, everything that he commands humanity to do is a natural expression of him because he is the creator God. And so every time that a person disobeys, the consequences are utterly natural. Let, let Let me say it this way. To disobey God, John, you could go ahead and put this up there on the screens. To disobey God is to unleash forces of chaos and disorder in your life and in the life of everything around you. Why? Not because God's out to get you. How many times have you ever thought that? How many times have you ever thought to yourself, I better not do that, I better not say that, because if I do, God's going to get me. I mean, like that's very human. Most people think that. But that's not the case. It's utterly natural. When you disobey God, you're going to unleash forces of chaos and disorder in your life and in the life of everything around you as a natural consequence of what you did. Now, let me, let me, just, let me give you a couple of examples of this that, that are very current. Uh, I don't know enough about what happened in Ferguson, Missouri, to render a verdict on anyone's guilt or anyone's innocence there. Was the policeman wrong to shoot? Um, Was Michael Brown coming toward him? Was he running away from him? I I don't know. And I'd be foolish. I'd be foolish to state an opinion on that because I just don't know. Here's what I do know. God commands humanity to love your neighbor as yourself because all of us have dignity as creations of God. When one race of people oppresses another race through through slavery and then shuts them out of power structures and refuses to recognize them as equal human beings and makes them sit at the back of the bus and go to different schools and drink at different water fountains and makes it difficult for them to be educated, here's what I know there will be racial disharmony for hundreds of years to come why because it's a natural it's a natural natural consequence of god's command you see if you don't obey god The integration that he created humanity to experience will become disintegration and disharmony that will literally spill over into the very streets in which you live. That's the natural consequence of not doing what God says to do. That's what he's saying in these plagues. Now let me give you another example. Um, God commands humanity that we are to worship no other gods Uh, before him. See, he created you. He created every human being on this planet, every human being that has ever lived, and every human being that ever will live. He created you, mind, body, and soul, to live in relationship with him. Do that, and you will experience coherence and wholeness. Don't do that, and you will experience psychological disintegration. You will experience emotional disintegration. You will experience relational dis- disintegration. And you will experience physical disintegration. Over the course of the last week uh, or so, I've been reading editorial. Well, actually, it was this week. I've been reading editorials this past week by people who've been asking how ISIS could be so brutal and so inhumane... To post a video of the beheading of an American journalist on social media for everyone to see. How could they possibly be so brutal? Here's the answer. The worship of any God, but the creator God, will result in that kind of psychological disintegration. Where you become that brutal. Now, I just, I'm going to drive this point just a little, um, a little closer to home. You've never beheaded anybody, but you have in your mind. Like, there are people that have wronged you that you have been so angry at that in your mind, you know very good and well if you had a sword, you'd have lopped off their heads. Because you've experienced that kind of psychological disintegration. What God, is, what God is saying, He's speaking to us through these plagues from thousands of years ago, and He's answering our questions about who is the Lord, and why we should, why should we obey Him. And as, as the Creator... He's saying, as the creator, God has designed the world to operate in a manner that is a perfect expression of who he is. And so when we disobey, you unleash forces of chaos and disorder in your life and everything around you. Now, there's a flip side to that. There's a flip side to that. That's the negative side. Here's the positive side. Because God is the creator, God, worship and obey him and you will flourish. And you will be a blessing to everything and everyone around you. See, this is the message of the plagues. That's what God's trying to say. Not only am I the singular God, but I'm the creator God. And everything, even my law, is an expression of who I am. Now, last thing. Here's here's the last one that I want you to see. There's one final answer in these plagues to Pharaoh's pluralistic question, who is the Lord and why should I obey him? The third answer is this. And we see this in these plagues. God God answers Pharaoh and says, I'm not only the singular God, I'm not only the creator God, but I am also the saving God. And this this is so unique. It says, I'm the saving God. One of the other things that commentators and theologians who are much smarter than I have noticed about these plagues is that throughout these plagues, it seems like God often pulls his punches. You know what I mean by pulling your punch? I mean, you know, this is so like, like instead of actually hitting someone, you kind of pull it. You don't, you don't hit them as hard as you could. You kind of pull it a little bit. You know what I'm talking about? Nod your heads. Yes. Okay. We know what you're talking about, Jeff. That's what I want you to let me know. Okay. Here's what they're observing. And I want to to just show you this. It's in in chapter 9, but you don't have to turn there. I'm going to just put it up here on the screen for you. Uh, Chapter 9, it starts in verse 13. Here's what they're observing. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says, Let my people go. Bingo. There you go. So Because this is going to come throughout this whole series, guys. I mean, just through the whole series, this little quiz. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and against your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up For this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter. Because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field. And they will die. You see, what, what they're noticing... Is that God says here, I could have wiped them all out. But but he hasn't. And not only that, but when he sends this hail, before he sends it, he, he warns Pharaoh. So that nothing in Egypt gets killed. And the question is, if these plagues are judgments on Pharaoh's disobedience, why is God pulling, why is he pulling his punches in this manner? Why is he doing that? And again, there's a message in these plagues. The purpose of these plagues, it's no doubt, the purpose in these plagues is to judge Pharaoh for disobedience, no question. But here's what I want you to understand. It's not judgment for the purpose of condemnation. It's not. It's judgment for the purpose of salvation. That's the reason that he's bringing this judgment. He's like, hey, I could have I wiped you out already if, if I wanted to. you know. If, if this was just about judgment, I could have wiped you out already. But I didn't because I wanted my name to be proclaimed throughout all of the world and throughout all of human history. I want Egyptians to know me. I want Hebrews to know me. I want Hittites to know me. I want Iraqis to know me. I want British people to know me. I want Evansvillians to know me. I even want Kentuckians to know me. I am the saving God. That's what he's saying. I'm the saving God. This whole thing is so that you will see my power, that I'm the singular God, that I'm the creator God, but I want to save you. I'm the saving God. Now, watch this. Watch this. When we get to the next to last plague in chapter 10, and we read about this just a few moments ago, thick darkness, spreads over the land for three days. Do you think three days is significant? Do you think that would be significant? Okay. Spreads over the land for three days. The sun and the moon now are gone. And this is the ultimate sign that the sin of human beings deconstructs nature and it deconstructs the fabric of our own being. And sin... Uh, deconstructs everything that God has made. And we're back now to pre-creation chaos of Genesis 1 and 2. And darkness is all over the land. And death is coming. And God tells Moses that the firstborn of everyone in Egypt will die unless, unless, The blood of a sacrificed animal is put on the sides and the tops of the door frames. Now, I wish, I so wish I had something up here that I could do this with. I don't, but you're just going to have to pretend like, okay, here's a door, right? This is a door. Say that with me. This is a door. Okay. So I'm going to look at the door. Okay. Put the blood at the top and at the sides. Now, look, can you guys see the door over here from where I'm standing? Okay, am I blocking the door for you? Can you see the blood on the top and on the sides? Okay. Look, just, I'm going to concede to you that this is said nowhere in in Scripture, what I'm going to tell you right now. But I just, this is an observation I made. Connect the dots. There's the blood on the sides, and there's the blood at the top. What does that look like to you? Yeah, that looks like a cross, doesn't it? Blood on the sides of the top, at the sides and the top of the door, frames. When God sends this final plague of death, what he says is that no firstborn will die in Egypt if there's blood on the doorposts. In other words... Salvation will come through the blood of a sacrifice. Now, fast forward. Okay, we're going to fast forward a number of centuries later. And there is another place where this thick darkness occurs. And it's when Jesus is hanging on a Roman cross outside of Jerusalem. It's in Matthew chapter 27. Don't turn there. We'll just put it up here on the screen. John, if you'd put it up here on the screen. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came all over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Aramaic. This is in Aramaic. He says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, what's going on? What's going on in that? Here's what's going on. On the cross, all of the plagues of God's justice fell onto Jesus. All of the plagues that you and I deserve because of our sin fell onto Jesus there on the cross. And by the blood of his sacrifice, we are saved, just as the Hebrews were saved centuries before. Jesus, God in the flesh, the judge of all the earth, came to bear judgment, not to bring judgment. And do you know what this does? Do you know what this reality does? Do you know what this means? Do you understand the significance of this? It means that Christianity is utterly unique. It is not like any other religion in the world. In every other religion, every other religion says says this. It says, here are the standards. Do them or you experience judgment. But in Christianity, what Christianity says is that the judge came and bore judgment for you so that he could receive you Freely. And there, again, in the book of Exodus, is the consistency of the Bible and the supremacy of Jesus Christ and the beauty of the gospel over every other religion and over every other philosophy in the world. Here's the answer. Who is the Lord? that you should obey him. He is the singular God. He is the creator God, but not just those things. He is also the saving God. Now, one last thing, and then I I promise we're going to close here. The pluralist, the religious pluralist, will argue that it is arrogant to place your take on spiritual reality over anybody else's. The pluralist will say that's not fair, that's intolerant, you can't do that. You're saying your God is superior to all of the other gods and you can't do that, that's not fair. But you see, look, everybody, everybody has a take on spiritual reality. Everybody, even the atheist has a take on spiritual reality. He says, says, she says that you know, there, is no, there is no spiritual reality. Uh, what you get is what you see, that's it. That's the atheist's take. And everyone, regardless of what their take on spiritual uh, reality is, everyone thinks that their take is right and that the world would be better if everyone adopted theirs. That's unavoidable. You can't avoid that. Everybody has that perspective. Here's what is avoidable, though. The cross doesn't allow you to believe that Christianity is better and hold that belief with arrogance or violence, or coercion, or disrespect of other people. It doesn't allow that. The cross, Jesus dying for you, is the most powerful and potent resource that makes you come to other people. Because honestly, look, honestly, a good Buddhist is a good Buddhist because he or she has worked at being a good Buddhist. A good Muslim is a good Muslim because he or she has worked at being a good Muslim. But a Christian is not a Christian because they've worked at it. You were saved in spite of your works, whether they were good or bad. And so, yeah, you, you can't avoid saying, yes, the Christian view of spiritual reality is better than all the others. God says it. But you can't avoid a superior attitude to people who don't believe. You can avoid disrespect. You can avoid coercion. You, the cross forces you to have humility and respect and love and kindness for everyone. And you see, as we say every week here, the cross changes everything. Even how you treat people who disagree with the God of Christianity changes everything. Who is the Lord that you should obey him? He is the singular God. He is the creator God. And he is also the saving God. Would you bow your heads with me? Our Lord Jesus Christ, we acknowledge your supremacy this morning. We acknowledge your beauty. We are thankful for the consistent message of the Bible that in all of it, it points to you, Lord Jesus. We acknowledge, every one of us, that we are sinners. And as a result of our sin, we have each experienced emotional disintegration and psychological disintegration and relational disintegration and even physical disintegration because of our sins. And we recognize that apart from you, Lord Jesus Christ, if we, if we tried in any way to make up for our sins on our own, that we could never do that. And so we just bring all of our sins, I bring my sins, uh, to the foot of the cross. And we say, Lord Jesus, thank you that by your blood, uh, our sins are forgiven. Lord, for those that are here this morning that may be wrestling with where they stand on this idea of there being a singular God, I pray that perhaps that something that has been said today would speak to their hearts. I pray that you would communicate to their hearts that, that yes, you are the God who judges, but but that your judgment was was never for condemnation. It was always for salvation. And I pray that you would convey that to them in the way that only you can. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.